Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from C21's Ed Waller, Clive Whittingham and Michael Pickard about the trends and issues that are front of mind for buyers and sellers at this year's London screenings. The place of UK programming on the global stage and some of the new shows to watch out for at the 2021 virtual event. Today marks the start of the 2021 London Screenings, an event that's been gathering momentum in recent years, with a number of distributors launching their own sales events to coincide with the annual BBC Studios Showcase in Liverpool. Buyers from all around the world would normally be passing through the UK capital right now, but of course none of that's possible this year with the pandemic. Online screenings, meetings, panel discussions and virtual cocktails are all still taking place, however, with distributors in buoyant mood as demand for programming continues to soar. We'll be hearing from a number of those involved on C21 FM and in the podcast over the next two weeks. But here with me now to discuss this year's event are C21 Editorial Director Ed Waller, News Editor Clive Whittingham and Drama Quarterly Editor Michael Picard. Hello everybody, welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi. Hello. Um, Ed, just give us a bit of history, if you would, um, a little bit more about the uh, the origins of uh, of the London screenings, how it's kind of gained momentum over the, the past few years. Sure, yeah. Well, it, it's come off the back of uh, the BBC Studios Showcase, which I remember back in the days taking place place in Brighton and then uh, because of all the all the buyers being uh, in London to, to make that trip down to Brighton distributors would have parties or cocktails or impromptu drinks or what have you obviously when BBC showcase moved to Liverpool they were still largely flying into London to make that trip so they that continued and it's kind of grown organically around showcase to be honest uh, in used used to be like until this year in the week or two immediately after showcase there would be events and and screenings and cocktails and and what have you. I think this year, because everything's virtual, it's become much more formalised under the uh, the six companies, Banerjee, All3, Fremantle, E1, ITV Studios, and, and more recently, Kesha International that joined to make that six. Uh, and they've had a bit more structure to it in the sense that they, they've each got a designated day uh, that they're going to have their virtual screening. I, I guess it's a little bit like how the LA screenings works. It's it's a, a very informal event that's managed by the uh, companies that are, are behind it. That's not to say there aren't other things happening in and around showcase um obviously other distributors like cineflix are having uh, sort of virtual events passion and some of the other distributors even the the, the u.s studios like uh, sony are having screenings of, of uh, and uh, virtual format festivals in and around end of february and the first couple of weeks of march so everyone's taking advantage of the fact that the international buying community is is focusing their virtual gaze uh, on uh, on what's going on in london and, you know in previous years they, they would literally be flying here and, and shuffling around Soho but now they're just doing it in cyberspace so it remains to be seen how how formalized it gets next year whether there's still this formal sort of uh, umbrella organization and whoever you know who, who knows there might be opportunities to build it out further with other distributors or even other conference elements or panels and that kind of thing when we get to uh, normality in 2022. Mike you'd normally be shuffling around Soho covering some of this stuff um, you know how, how do you see the 2021 event and you know particularly the fact that as Ed says, 
this, I guess, there's there's a kind of a cohort of major distributors that have come together to make this a, an actual formal event. Yeah, I was just uh, just thinking, you know, this time last year, I would have been sort of shuffling between the Roundhouse in Camden for the ITV Studios Drama Festival, um, which is a, a very impressive venue. ITV, I think, have got themselves there if they manage to keep hold of it for, you know, years to come. Um, and then, you know, back into central London where Studio Canal were, uh, were having a presentation and I moderated uh, a panel for them. So um, it's interesting to see how the, uh, you know, the big six have come together to formalise the event. I think that formalisation was, uh, you know, perhaps inevitable that it would happen eventually. It's been an unhidden secret for uh, many years that, you know, all these events were happening around London after the, the BBC showcase. And it's, it's obviously great that these six have come together now. I think it's going to be interesting next year, really, when presumably after Boris Johnson's encouraging words that we'll all be back in, in London visiting all these uh, different events in, in February next year. Um, and I think, you know, as Ed's just sort of said there, there are other distributors having events this year outside of that big six. So it's just a case of how those other uh, distributors formalise, whether there's more London-based companies will come into the fold, whether companies like Studio Canal from overseas will obviously come into that as well, maybe, or just continue to have their own events sort of outside the formalisation. So um, I think there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, promise for, for the London screenings and, and you know, as people will have experienced over the last few years, I'm sure there'll be plenty more of uh, events going on around it, regardless of, of who's within that main umbrella group. Uh, Clive, in the normal course of a TV industry events calendar, the London screenings kind of sneaks in between Nappy, Real Screen, Series Mania and MIP TV. Um, given that all these events are being forced to go online this year, what's its place right now? And is there any sense that it's beginning to muscle out the necessity for some of these others? Yeah, that's uh, that was definitely the, the way things were heading, I think, before lockdown. Obviously, we've got to wait and see what form this event and other events on the calendar take uh, when we come out the other side of this. I guess to, it looks a bit mad, really, to try and launch what is going to be a physical event uh, while all this is going on. But as we've said, this is it's been heading in this direction for a number of years and this is just formalizing that there were already a lot of events uh, on the circuit we've talked before on this podcast about how it had got to the point where we could basically have a reporter at a television event every week of the year apart from Christmas how sustainable that was anyway when television's already uh, looking inwardly at itself about its environmental impact uh, I, I, I mean that was a talking point anyway obviously lockdown we haven't been able to travel and I think a lot of companies have realized that you don't actually need to be on a plane and at an event all the time so there's going to be pressure on events to sort of prove their worth once we're all back and allowed to, to travel and um, these companies are obviously confident in the um the attraction of the london screenings like you say it's got the the bbc showcase to to draw people into the country anyway other events either side of it may feel the pinch i can see you can you can see the unique selling point of things like nappy and real screen and why those events are, are going to be fine in january they seem to fit quite well as a start of the year particularly in the unscripted business which which I focus on. Obviously, the vulnerable one, like the elephant in the room almost, is, is MIP TV afterwards, which had, had its struggles and people were perhaps wondering whether it presented good value for the spend. Certainly, it cost distributors a lot of money to, to go there. Did we need to be going to Cannes twice a year was already a talking point, even before London screenings was formalised and the world fell apart. So that would be the obvious pinch point on the other side of this, you would think. ITV Studios already was um, putting increasing focus on on the UK screenings or the London screenings, its own event, and put that ahead of uh, of attending MIT TV last year, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? The spend 
distance to go to Mitbv is is enormous. And if you can do an event on your doorstep um, at, a, at a cheaper price without flying your whole team down there, particularly at a time when buyers, particularly the US buyers, were sort of shunning TV in favour of, of MIPCOM, and it makes sense to do it on your doorstep, I guess. And what about the effectiveness of these virtual markets? You know, as as sales tools, we've been talking to some of the to the buyers and and sellers um, in the run up to this. So you know, how, how are they kind of feeling that these things are, are working for them? The sense I get from talking to both buyers and sellers is that Zoom fatigue is is creeping in for sure, particularly when it comes to development processes, the creative process. I think you know there's limitations on Zoom when it comes to creating new ideas and new formats. But when it comes to buying and selling, I think the efficiency of, of the platform is, is is winning through. I think the idea of you know flying to London or LA or anywhere and, and having two meetings a day and spending most of the time in, in the back of an Uber or a taxi um, versus having 15 meetings in one day. I mean, you know, everyone talks about the, the need for human contact and interaction and social and everything, but just having those, that, that ratio of 15 meetings a day as opposed to two, it suddenly makes your trip a lot more efficient and you can justify it a lot more. I mean, as as Ed says, there are a lot of efficiency advantages, not just around um, not having to travel and not having to spend as much to be at these events. Obviously, you can get a lot more meetings in, although that in itself can be tiring. And I think we've, we've all felt Zoom fatigue at one point or another over the past year, particularly when there's when there's events taking place. The thing that I, I, I think through all of this is it's okay if you've already got the contacts and you're doing business with people you already know, um, which I guess around London screenings when it's ITV studios pitching their formats to, to broadcasters, it works well there. You can get a lot of meetings in a day. You already know the, the contacts. The technology allows you to share clips maybe a lot easier than you can at events when you're fumbling around trying to find clips on iPads and things like that. So yeah, there are advantages. But if you're a new company, uh, a new producer with a new idea or a, a younger distributor with a smaller catalogue, perhaps trying to make their way in the industry, I, I don't see how you, you can do that and make those contacts and get that foot in the door as well while we're doing things like this. So I think afterwards we will move to a hybrid model where there are still events and some events are really strong and, and you have to attend maybe some of the smaller events or events that we're struggling go by the wayside. But we are going to have to move to a hybrid model. Otherwise, it's just going to be the same old faces and you're going to be talking to the same people and the same companies all the time. And new companies will find it really hard to get a foot in the door, which then doesn't lend itself so well to television. one of television's other problems, which is diversity and diversity of voice and getting new companies involved, new people involved. Like It's so difficult to do that while we're doing meetings like this. So I think it will be a hybrid model afterwards. We'll talk a little bit more in a moment about the place of UK programming, I guess, on, on the global stage. But I'm just wondering how buoyant distributors are feeling at the moment. Obviously, 2020 was bad in many, many ways, but for the industry, for production, it was particularly a struggle. But for, for sellers of programming, obviously, the demand is is out there. How, how are the distributors that you've been speaking to feeling about the, the market right now, and particularly given the surge that we've seen in, in streaming and, and consumer uptake of that? I think the, the distributors I've spoken to have, have said that, yeah, there was a, a lot of problems created by the production freeze in terms of supply lines. And obviously, that had a, had an impact. But the 
that's been mitigated to quite a considerable degree by the upsurge in finished tape sales. You know, buyers delving into back catalogue from the distributors to buy shows that, that they passed over three or four years ago and now they're, they're interested in again. That's been an easy win in, in some senses. A lot of the distributors I've spoken to the last few months have said that they, they had a, you know, the distribution side of the business had a, had a great time, but the production side of the business didn't. Um, and so I think, I, think, I think they're quietly confident about the export figures for last year and for this year going forward. Mike, can you give us a few of your hot picks from the drama lineup at this year's event? Absolutely. Um, you know, these are no way clouded by interviews I've already done. Um, these are some of the uh, hot picks I think will be coming up uh, over the next year that I'll be going you know, to be trailed, you know, at the BBC Studio Showcase and at the London screenings as well. Um, particularly from, you know, from the BBC, I'm quite excited to see Time, which is a new Jimmy McGovern miniseries starring Sean Bean and, and Stephen Graham set in prison. Sean Bean plays a man convicted of a killing someone in an accident and he's kind of left to consider his guilt in his cell while Stephen Graham plays um, his sort of prison officer who's kind of put in an impossible decision to choose sort of between his family and has to make a, a terrible decision and it's uh, it's quite a, a soul-searching series sort of about guilt and, and forgiveness and, and if anyone knows Jimmy McGovern's work that'll certainly be one to watch. Coming from Banerjee, um, something slightly different. Um, I got to speak to the producer very recently of RFDS the Royal Flying Doctor Service. It's based on the true stories of the, of the flying doctors um, who operate um, in some of the remote areas of Australia. People like myself who grew up sort of in the 80s and 90s might remember the Flying Doctors, uh, the original series. So this is kind of a new take on, on, on the people who work in that service and have to respond to emergencies by jumping in a plane and flying for four hours to get to uh, whoever might be in trouble. So that looks like a, a very intriguing series to see, uh, you know, a new take on the medical drama that maybe we haven't seen for a few years and then you know something else that's caught my eyes ITV's upcoming crime drama Grace John Sim plays a detective and it's based on the the novels by Peter James so there's you would imagine some scope there for that to be a returning uh, series and and obviously John Sim's a very popular actor certainly in the UK but I know one series ITV are particularly excited about is uh, Harry Palmer The Yet Chris File which is uh, based on the Len Dayton thriller and set in the 1960s featuring the spy Harry Palmer so I'm I know they're excited about that and, uh, you know, has everything, I guess, um, you know, particularly a, um, a brand name, a franchise possibilities, Cold War, period drama. Um, that could be certainly one to watch. Uh, I think we'll be seeing more of that uh, later in the year. And um, those shows, obviously, on the, the scripted side, it's been more challenging times in many ways than it has been for unscripted. Um, getting those productions completed presumably been something of a battle for those uh, those sellers. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's really fascinating, really. I mean, you, you kind of talk to people now about you know how they finish their shows a lot of the shows obviously coming to market now won't have been started before the pandemic uh, you know there was a period you know over the last year where most of the shows would have started had some sort of horror story where they had to just down tools somewhere in the world send everyone home to make sure they could get home that was obviously around March time last year when the pandemic sort of really began to bite and, and people were put under lockdowns now it's kind of I guess it's the you know the stoicism and, and the resourcefulness of, of the you know the cast and crews working on this shows that the pandemic is kind of just something they, they deal with now they have the masks the social distancing policies in place everything is uh, you know obviously very well cleaned you know there are kind of badges for who can go into what part of, of which set everything's kind of really well drilled I think now and, and it's sort of I think it's a, you know a sign of positivity and, and just I'm, I'm amazed to hear how, they, how they're operating really considering I haven't left the house for 11 months it feels like so <laughs> you know the fact that they're filming these series uh, 
um, is, is remarkable. And, um, you know, it, it seems to be that everyone seems to have got a blueprint now of, of how these things are working. And um, aside from from the odd scare where productions have, have had to shut down, everyone's pulling together. And, and that means that we're still getting these shows coming down the line and, you know, more to look forward to for the rest of the year. Unscripted certainly been flourishing, I guess, in, in many ways, though, as a result. Clive, what are you seeing on that side? And, you know, how's Unscripted playing into the London screenings this time? Yeah, it could be a, an amazing year for, for Unscripted and for formats for, for several reasons, some some more obvious than others, perhaps. I mean, we, we spoke previously about how 2020 was kind of the year of back catalogue. Lots of production went on hold. Lots of holes appeared in schedules because obviously sports and live events and things went away and quick fixes were needed at a time when budgets were challenged. And so back catalogue maybe helped with that last year, but that back catalogue isn't endless. So this year, if you, if you think about it, those production holdovers from last year are probably going to have a knock-on effect this year. We don't know when big sporting events are going to come back. So those schedule holes are still going to exist. And uh, the back catalogue is probably, if not exhausted, it's certainly there's less in there than there was last year. So broadcasters need stuff that can fill big chunks of the schedule. They need stuff that's cheap to make. They need stuff that can be made under restrictions. And all of that really points to game shows, formats that have got a proven record elsewhere also mitigate the risk. So I think you'll see the screen is this way. I think stuff that's going to be really popular is game show formats with proven records i know bbc studios recently did a deal with youngest media not only to have a look at what youngest media come up with in future but also they basically pick up the ip to small fortune which i think is like the perfect covid format it can be filmed by its very nature in a very small studio with very few people so i think things shows like that the one percent club that is on the bbc studios catalog that sort of thing is going to be popular for all of those reasons plus while we're all locked in at home as as families, things that can be co-viewed, things that can maybe have a play-along app, things that the whole family can sit and watch are really, really popular. So again, all of that points to formats and game shows. I think that'll be the hot genre, not only of this fortnight, but also most of the first half of this year. Ed, what about the sort of overall value, I suppose, and and, and status of UK programming on the global stage right now? The industry indie trade body Pact released some figures towards the end of last year. They were pre-COVID, but showing that again, sort of record-breaking revenues coming into the economy as a result of the export of UK shows. What, what's the state of play right now, do you feel? Well, I, mean, I think it's good to, to reference those uh, that data that PACT released. You know, even before uh, lockdown had its impact, you know, the UK exports were growing the year on year was 6% up to just under 1.5 billion for 2019 slash 20. So, you know, UK exports to the international market are, are growing. 6% is not to be uh, sniffed at. The USA continues to be the lion's share of that you know nearly a third of all of those exports going to the usa you know nearly 40 percent if you if you talk about north america and uh, France and Australia being the second and, and third biggest markets for UK exports. So it's it's interesting interesting times. And, and those that trend, that growth story can only really have got bigger under lockdown, I would say. You know, the majority of those sales even then came from exports of finished programming and library shows. So that uh, trend will have been uh, exacerbated by the uh, situation that a lot of networks and buyers found themselves in last year. It's not all about North America, obviously Latin America and Asia are growing they're, they're the fastest growing bits latin america in that period 1920 are up 13% and asian sales was up 15% for that year so it's a, it's a growth story across the board really but i just want to talk a little bit about the us because you know given that it is a third of all of our exports of programming around the world it's 
interesting to see what's going on there to see if you know if, if events of 2020 is going to make that grow i think it is going to make it grow enormously i think the when you look at what what the us networks did as a consequence of the production freeze and lockdown you know they they reached for the to the international market to buy shows just like everyone else did and where did they go they went to canada and they went to the uk to pick up shows to just drop into the fall season the biggest buyer of the fall season in that sense was the cw network they bought an awful lot of canadian and british shows and just put them all in in the full season in fact the, the network's full season pretty much switched from completely original to completely acquired for that uh, that full season you know they picked up sky show called devils they picked up a, a, a british sitcom called dead pixels a competition show called killer camp from itv2 and a, and a reality show called being ruben that was produced by discovery owned uh, free-to-air network called quest red so they 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 picked up an awful lot of british stuff and, and they've you know their uh, exec vp of programming kevin levy's been in, around the virtual conferences saying he wants more you know he hasn't he isn't done yet and he's he's saying he's going to be very aggressive in buying more shows from the international market first looking at canada the uk and maybe even australia and those kinds of things so the uk exports really uh, had an uptick because of the events happening in the us and if we look at whether those events are going to continue it's not just about those networks response to covid which is a, hopefully a temporary measure but it's more in my mind about those us networks response to the streaming boom and the fact that their parent studios have put streaming center stage if you launch a, a direct-to-consumer streaming service and you and you put your linear networks in a sort of more peripheral position you know you're, you're making a, a quite a big statement there so and, and what happened in the fall season is those linear channels became sort of uh, rerun networks for what was going on on the uh, affiliated streamer that was part of the same studio you know that they, they had shows that were on the third season on the streamer and they had the first season to try and get more audience for the for the for the streamer um, and so it, it seems to me that if we if we roll this trend forward a few years the some of the US broadcast networks are going to move more and more into the acquired programming world you know they're going to face lower ad revenues uh, lower original production budgets because of that they'll embrace more acquisitions and become a sort of a network where you're, you're playing reruns from your sibling streamer and picking some other good stuff from the international market and if you're a US network that's obviously the UK plays a big part in that um, so the, the, the pandemic and 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 the, the move to streaming sort of really shifted I think the US broadcasting ecosystem to make it more amenable to acquiring shows from the international market and by consequence UK shows are going to benefit because they you know they already like UK shows they contribute you know 466 million per year to, to the UK coffers for by buying UK shows so I think they're going to there's, there's a bigger market add to the fact that those streamers are going to buy shows as well and there's a multiplication of other buyers in the US just like there is around the world so that UK exporters are going to find a much I think when the, when the number when pack releases the numbers for 20 slash 21 they're going to I think the US is going to be, be a bigger proportion of those sales um, something else that is, is worth uh, worth worth talking about is is the, the new kind of deal structures that are happening because of COVID and streaming together I think a lot of distributors that we've spoken to whether they're from the UK or the or from the US they're saying that the, the, the typical sort of deal structures that you had pre-lockdown and, and pre this streaming boom are sort of not happening anymore because they're, they're talking very much about this new term co-exclusivity where you know you buy a show but you don't have it exclusively the owner of the show can still do what they want with it and license it to other people so you you don't get an exclusive window on it you you get a co-exclusive window uh where you know people just share shows rather than owning them outright previously you'd have it for a window exclusively and then someone else would have it for another window after that but now it seems that all the barriers and the, the, the windows are being sort of broken and there's this new 
era of co-exclusivity, which would be interesting to see how that unfolds and whether it survives uh, lockdown and becomes a permanent part of the distribution mix. Obviously, Ed, as well, we've seen the growth, expansion of BritBox, the UK video-on-demand joint venture from the BBC and ITV, uh, gathering steam over the past few years. So uh, how's that changing things? Because obviously, if it follows the direction of travel of the US studios and the streamers that they're launching, uh, is there going to be a sort of tendency to to warehouse the the BBC content and the ITV content within that service? I think the, the same commercial imperatives that have driven the US studios to withhold some of their top programming and take it out of the ecosystem of distribution and and keep it to drive subscriptions to their own SVOD server. That that same commercial imperative will undoubtedly have to hit the UK distributors that are behind BritBox. I don't I don't see how it can't. If you're if you're in the business of building subscriptions to BritBox around the world, and let's face it, you know BritBox is going to become a global player. They announced last summer that they wanted to roll out into 25 other countries. They launched in South Africa. Announced the planned launch in South Africa. They've you know they've made substantial investments in Australia and New Zealand as far as BritBox is concerned. I, I can't see that them not being able to withhold certain shows and take them out of the market and 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 reserve them for BritBox. So, you know what what is good for the US studios has to be good for ITV studios and and BBC studios. Surely you know even before lockdown uh, and the boom in streaming uh, at the tail end of 2019, you know BritBox was saying that the vast majority of British shows will be removed from Netflix UK within the next year and and a lot of those were comedies that, that moved over to uh, BritBox obviously Netflix had its issues with UK comedies subsequently last year with the blackface issues but um, you know I, I I can't see that if, if you're if you're running those two distribution companies that are behind BritBox you can't say that we're going to prioritise third party platforms over a platform that we own uh, and put our best shows on a third party platform and drive subscribers to that platform as opposed to the one that we jointly own together. I, I can't see that that commercial logic uh, taking place. So yeah, I, I, I imagine that as we roll forward with the global rollout of BritBox, uh, a lot of buyers that hitherto were able to get British shows and their the choice of British hits are going to find that some of them are going to be reserved for a new competitor in their market. Okay, well, thanks very much, Ed. Thanks, Clive. Thanks, Mike. That's all we've got time for in this episode. There'll be more about the London screenings in the podcast tomorrow and throughout the next couple of weeks. We've also got a dedicated microsite focused on the event so look out for that and in the meantime stay safe and up to date with all the latest international tv industry developments by following c21 online on mobile and social media my name's jonathan webdale thanks for listening (laughs) 